This is Voice It, a podcast showcasing people in the Clare Valley and the mid-north of South Australia who've started their own businesses and transformed them into success stories. I'm Annabelle Homer. Well, it was really funny because I arrived at the airport and I had, I was only 22, so I was pretty young. Um, I had really short hair and Tim didn't know what I looked like and he didn't know, I didn't know what he looked like. And I'm sitting at the airport for ages and there's this really dodgy looking guy in a long overcoat and I'm like, oh my God, please don't be my boss. And he's looking at me going, is that a boy? Is that a girl? (laughs) Eventually we worked out that we were actually meant to be with each other. Meet Louise Lehman, a Scottish vet who accidentally became a permanent resident in the Clare Valley. What was meant to be an 18-month stint ended up being a 24-year stay. This interview is about a young girl from a dairy farm in southwest Scotland who on a whim decided to travel to Australia to have a crack at being a vet. Little did she know she would bump into Mr Wright, which led to three children and owning three veterinary clinics across the mid-north. Lou's real name is Helen. But don't call her that. She might cry. Now, that's a funny story. You'll hear later on. Lou talks about her life in Scotland and how she was discouraged to be a vet. She also chats about the challenges facing the shortage of vets in rural Australia and her personal battle with breast cancer. Lou's energy and positivity is infectious. Her candid account of her life is to be applauded. We start Lou's story in Scotland where her love for animals ignited her passion to be a vet. I definitely being surrounded by animals was a big part of my life growing up. Pretty much I had had a couple of sort of random ponies. My dad actually used to always buy the cheapest, <laughs> roughest looking, wildest pony that he could get away with for us. Um, so we had a couple of ring-ins, but then my first pony, proper pony was one called Mr. Wellington. And he actually died from grass sickness when I was 12. Um, it's a disease that is incurable. Uh, luckily, we don't have it in Australia. And that pretty much from there cemented uh, my career path. You mentioned, though, in a previous conversation that you weren't encouraged to go down the vet path. Why was that? Well, I had um, one of my teachers in particular, my chemistry teacher, just didn't have a lot of faith in my ability, Mr. Wiley, and did not um, think I had, I don't know what it was, but didn't think I had it in me to be a vet. And I didn't quite get the grades I needed in my year 11 results, which is what you go to uni based on over in Scotland. So my school advisors actually had me down to do accountancy and didn't think there was any point in me trying to be a vet because I wasn't smart enough and I wouldn't get there. Were there many female vets back then? Um, no, it was definitely still quite male dominated. Yeah. So was that the reason, do you think, more yeah. so than the grades? I think it might have been. I don't know what it was. Or maybe he was trying to reverse psychology me into being a better student. I don't know. I wasn't that bad a chemistry student, but um, I'm not sure. But I ended up, I had my forms all filled in to do accountancy. And my mum actually put her foot down and said, no, you're not. You're not applying to be an accountant. I'm going to write to the vet schools and see if there's any point in you applying with your grades. I was one grade off what I needed. And she wrote to both Edinburgh and Glasgow, who are the two Scottish vet schools. And I got an interview with both of them. And it just sort of went from there. I wanted to go to Edinburgh because it had the name at the time, the Dick Vet School of being the best in the country. But I was interviewed by three very stuffy old men who were just horrible and made me feel 
useless. And then I went to Glasgow and I had some, I had a rugby play, a guy who plays rugby interview me, a younger female and an older guy, and they were just gorgeous. And I thought, yeah, I want to come to Glasgow. And Glasgow gave me a position. I was able to get a place on the course. And then I started my five years up in Glasgow. So Glasgow's two hours north of where we grew up. So it was a big transition going from a little dairy farming community up to the big smoke. But I had a fantastic time. I've met some lifelong friends through being at uni that we still catch up with. We had our 20-year vet school reunion in 2017. We went back to Scotland for that. And I still keep in touch with a lot of them. It's great. Have you ever gone back to that teacher and said, look at me now, I'm a vet, I didn't become an accountant? I haven't, but I know my mum has. <laughs> so he, his daughter was a friend of mine at school and yeah, that she, she was, my mum was a home economics teacher at the school at the time and she made a point of letting them know when I get in. So he, he knows quite well where I'm at. So, <laughs> take that. <laughs> take that, Mr. Wiley. <laughs> Love it. Love As I it. said, maybe it was his maybe it was his ploy to make me work. I don't know. You grew up on Dairy Farm. What's the nearest town? So the nearest town to us that people may have heard of is Dumfries. Um it's in Dumfries and Galloway. So you go over the border from England, turn left, keep going and then you turn left again and we're on this little peninsula down the bottom. So once you graduated from VET, uh, was the idea to go and travel the world and end up in the Clare Valley? Uh, no, I don't. I didn't. I think I just sort of cruise along a bit in life sometimes, and I didn't really have any major aspirations of where I wanted to be. And then what happened was our next door neighbour on the farm next to us, Rob, he had married an Australian girl previously and they'd emigrated to Toowoomba she'd helped him out with his lambing a few years previously she'd gone over to the UK as a nurse and wasn't allowed to work because Maggie Thatcher banned all the immigrants from working and wanted to give the jobs to Brits so Sally took a job on this farm in Scotland and fell in love with the farmer and they married and had three gorgeous girls moved up to Toowoomba and they were at home the Christmas before I graduated and Sally said what are you going to do? Where are you going to work? And I said, oh, I don't know. And she goes, well, why don't you come out to Australia? And I thought, well, why not? So she had a few vet contacts and one of them was Tim Laurie here. And at the time, Tim was running clinics out of Clare, Port Perry, Kadena, Minlaton and Maitland, and they were looking for a bit of an extra vet. And he gave me the job. So what was your first impression of South Australia when you flew in? Totally different landscape to Scotland. Well, it was really funny because I arrived at the airport and I had, I was only 22, so I was pretty young. Um, I had really short hair and Tim didn't know what I looked like and he didn't know, I didn't know what he looked like. And I'm sitting at the airport for ages and there's this really dodgy looking guy in a long overcoat and I'm like, oh my God, please don't be my boss. And he's looking at me going, is that a boy? Is that a girl? (laughs) Eventually we worked out that we were actually meant to be with each other. So that was my start and he drove me up here and we got halfway to Clare and there was this god-awful smell in the car and I'm like, oh my God, that's really smelling. I put the window down and we get a bit further up the road and the smell hits again and he looked at me and put his window down and then it happened again and he suddenly went, oh, I forgot, I've got my mother-in-law's dog in the boot. <laughs> it's got an ear infection and I'm taking it to fix it. So that was my introduction to Clare. It was crazy. Would you think it was him? Yeah, I thought it was him and he thought it was me. He thought, oh, well, she's been on a plane for 24 hours. She's going to be a bit stinky. So that was my introduction to South Australia. And the other thing that happened was I arrived in August expecting to come to sunshine and beaches and warmth. And I arrived in Clare in the middle of August and it was freezing. You'd be used to that though. I was, but... I was trying to get away from that. I think one of my big things about, I love Scotland to bits, but 
it can get quite depressing in the winter. It's very grey and very dark. And Australia at the time, we were getting, you know, our whole opinion of Australia was probably neighbours and home and away. So you just thought everybody lived in mm-hmm. nice straits, had swimming pools and went to the beach all the time. And I arrived here in August and realised that was not the case. So was the plan to stay for just a year? Yeah, so my plan initially was maybe 18 months. 18 months to two years. And then I thought, well, if I'm really bad at this vet stuff, I'll go home and no one will know. <laughs> so I was, so that was the plan. But I turned, I was very lucky when I turned up here, there was another girl working here that we just hit, we both got on really well. We hit it off and I stayed with her out at Stanley Stud. But Catherine had already taken a job to move on. So I only had six months of her company, but it was enough to really introduce me to a lot of the locals. Um, I got introduced to bridge. We are talking about this the other night. There was a group that, had me playing bridge I was at playing squash tennis I'm really not that sporty but I was pulled in all these directions and the best advice I was given was by Tim's wife Jane and she just said don't say no to any invitations she said just when you arrive just say yes to everything and you'll work out what it is and where you fit and that was great do you find the Scots similar to Australians yeah I think so I think we're pretty warm and open and welcoming and having an accent, I mean obviously I don't notice my accent at all, but having an accent, it's just a conversation starter as well. People always want to know where you're from and what's brought you here. And they want you just to keep talking. Yeah, <laughs> they find that, which is not hard. <laughs> so was it Bridge where you met your now husband Jason? No, he wasn't a Bridge player so I didn't meet, it was quite good, I didn't meet Jason for a few years so but then I'd already... I've got some very good friends now that I'd made in those early days in Clare because I got here in 97. Jason was in the Navy at the time, so although he was based here, he was never here. And I met him in 2000, and it was interesting. I'd been here three years by then and was thinking that maybe I'd make a move and potentially go back to Scotland, and then I met Jason. And we just hit it off, and he was in the Navy then, but had plans to get out and head to the UK because his mum is English and he's granny lived through the blitz she's still going she's 97 and lives here in Clare she's still got her cockney accent so we met and we went back to the UK together in 2002 where did you meet we met in the middle pub (laughs) on a Friday night just after work drinks I met him and his dad actually at the front bar and things just went from there (laughs) How long were you together before you decided to go back to Scotland? Um, Well, we met in 2000 and then we went back. We both decided to go back actually in sort of 2001. But then when the Twin Towers were hit in America, Jason was still in the Navy and he got deployed overseas. For it. He was going to get out and ended up staying an extra year or so just to deal with things there. So I moved back to the UK and we got engaged in early 2002. I think I should know this and I moved back to the UK then for six and he followed me after six months so it was good I bet your family was happy to have you back because I guess the impression was oh no she's met an Australian she's going to be stolen from us forever yeah pretty much and I think yeah they were really happy and it was good that I went back for six months on my own because I got to just sort of see all my friends and Um, do whatever I wanted catching up with people and then when Jason arrived we sort of did it all again so it was good it let me sort of just touch base with family really. Was the aim to set up a life in Scotland or was it always to come back to Clare? No it was it wasn't always to come back to Clare but it was definitely to come back to Australia. I had a great upbringing in Scotland it was hard work but it was just an amazing childhood but I'd also seen the lifestyle that children and people have here and 
I don't know, the UK, it's quite... It's very anti-establishment at the moment, anti-government. There's a lot of dis... Not the, it's not discomfort, what's the word? Unrest, and people just aren't happy. There seems to be a lot more... Everybody seems a bit more disgruntled in general and quite whingy. Why? I don't know. I just feel it doesn't have the same positive outlook. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's the weather. But as much as I love going back... like So we were back there for three years... And we loved it. We had a fantastic time. But we just both decided we'd bring our children up in Australia. So I got a job in Carlisle, which is just the south side of the border in England. And Jason, it was great for Jason. He teed up with a local rugby club and he learned to play rugby. He had a great time over there. He's made some really good friends. And the practice I worked in was similar to this. It was mixed practice. So not many horses, but a bit of cattle work and cats and dogs. And then we got married in 2003 and had Rebecca in 2005. And when she was born, we moved out, we moved back. And the reason we moved back while she was still quite young is we wanted to get the baby bonus. <laughs> so if we Hello. got her back by 13 weeks, we could get the baby bonus, which we used to buy a ski boat. We didn't have a house or anything, like we just moved back. So that was what brought us back. And it was interesting, we weren't gonna move back to Clear, we were gonna move back to Prospect. Jason had a house that he'd bought there when we were first together we couldn't get into it for six weeks because it had tenants and because we had to get back with Rebecca at a certain age we thought we'll just move back to Clear for the interim and the first week we were back in Clear I caught up with some, first couple of nights I went out with some friends Jason went out with some friends and we thought what are we doing moving to Adelaide we've got this new baby all our friends all my friends in Australia are here and his family were here so we decided we'd stay and that was it. So then we bought our house, that was in 2005. We bought the house across the road here the following year. And Tim Laurie still had the practice? Yeah. yeah. So Tim still had it, but when I was working for him, there was three of us full time. And by the time I'd come back, things had sort of run down a little bit. And he wasn't in partnership with John anymore over on the peninsula. I think he'd sold the Perry Clinic as well, and he was just here in Clare. And so I came back and was doing a little bit of work for him. And did approach him about the possibility of partnership, but he didn't feel there was enough work at the time for two vets in the clinic. So we went and spoke with the other vet in town and we had a plan to buy his business. However, there was some a massive increase in price right at the last minute and we pulled out. So it was quite sad. We were in there, we'd been running it for a couple of weeks and then there was a major breakdown in discussions and we walked out. So that was a big learning curve for us, not to take things at face value and get it in writing. But anyway, we moved on from that. That was when Rebecca was one. So that was 2006, all that sort of fell through. And I just started working out the back. I had a ute and I worked out the back of the ute for about six months doing horse work and a little bit of small animal stuff. And then the opportunity came up. The vet in Jamestown that was up there had actually taken a different job and there was no vet in Jamestown. And Jason and I thought, well, we'll go up there and set up a practice. And if we have to move and rent our house here for a while, we'll do it. So we did. We went up to Jamestown, bought a house, got all set up to start a practice. And then Tim came back to us and said, actually, I will sell you my practice at a price that was more reasonable than he'd wanted because we'd been in discussions with him. And we ended up doing both. So we we bought the house in Jamestown in December. We got the Clear Clinic in I think it all went through in about... Fe- we opened up in Jamestown in February and Clear in April. So was that the aim, was to start your own clinics? One, I don't know. Sometimes once you've had children, your outlook changes a bit. And I think I never had a drive to be a business owner and certainly never, ever thought I'd buy the first clinic that I worked in. 
But coming back with a baby, I think maybe you're just a bit more mature or you've just got different outlooks. I didn't want to work for anyone else. I maybe you're braver. Maybe you've just... Maybe. Yeah. maybe that's it. And you just think, well, no, I want to do it. You want to be a bit more stubborn about things. Although we were so naive looking back, going into it. But the opportunity came up and we ended up with two clinics. And a really good friend of mine came out from the UK on holiday and we sponsored her for a visa and she worked for me for six months, which was fantastic. So I had her and myself and Kelly Marr helped us for a bit. Mm -hmm. And then we got another permanent vet. And then I found out I was pregnant with Sam. So that was a really big year for us, but it was fun. So now you've got three kids. You've got Rebecca, Sam and Archie. That's correct. And you have three clinics now. Mm. So that's Jamestown, Clare and Balaclava. Yeah, that's correct. So Claire's full time. It's five days a week and Saturday mornings. Our Jamestown Clinic has recently, we started with three days a week years ago and then pulled it back. It just wasn't quite busy enough. But in the last six months, we're back to three days a week and it's going great. Balaclava, we had to close, unfortunately, during COVID last year. Just It's quite a small building and we were limited with our the ability to work there. But we're back there two days a week as well. We also cover all the equine work actually out of Gawler, North and a fair bit of cattle work as well. So how many vets do you have on staff or vet nurses? So we've got quite a lot of staff which we need. So we've got vet nurses. I have, we've got five full-time vet nurses um, and another girl who is grooming for us who's going to be do, doing a little bit more nursing. And I've got a, another girl that does two days a week in Jamestown. And vet-wise, I've currently got three permanent full-time vets and myself and two part-timers. So how difficult has it been to retain staff in this industry considering 90% of the students or vet students in this country are female? Well, it's interesting you ask that because you did interview me about this very issue <laughs> years ago. when Still we were, an issue. Yeah. yeah, and there's a lot of um, publicity currently in mainstream media but also around the veterinary profession itself about the poor retention of vets in the industry and why do we we lose I think the average length of a veterinary veterinarian's working life is five years that's it so they go to uni they study so hard and come out put all this work and come out with all this debt and they might work for five years and there's been a lot of discussion and forums on why this happens and they have found that a lot of it is due to poor remuneration vets certainly don't come out on the money that a lot of people expect they do um, I think a new grad's wage is about 55,000 a year which compared to a lot of industries is really low um, so there's poor remuneration there's a lot of mental stress you're dealing with the mental stress from looking after pets that are unwell clients that can't afford to look after them there's a lot of pressure on vets and so that leads to people not wanting to work full-time but the major part I feel and which you've highlighted you mentioned on Annabelle is the fact that we're female so if we have 90% of our workforce as women and only half of that workforce decide to have children you've lost 50% to full-time work why aren't the blokes interested in doing that? I don't know. And I don't know what it is. I wonder, we were taught, there's a lot of discussion around it. Maybe I think veterinary work itself, you have to have a high degree of empathy to want to do it. So we don't become a vet because, oh yeah, I'm going to make $100,000, $200,000 a year. You become a vet because you want to help. And traditionally, women are more the caregivers, I think. Um, and when it does come down to financial return, men are maybe just a bit tougher than us women at asking for the dollars. And if the dollars aren't there, they're not going to go into the profession. I don't know. 
how does it work out when you need those big animal vets out there yeah. and all these women are taking on these jobs? Well, the thing is, there's not, there's nothing that a larger vet can do that I can't. And we're all very skilled at using medications if we need to, sedation if we need to, crushes, safety equipment. Like really, we're not disadvantaged by size. So we can, women can still do all the work the men can do. Um, I just don't know why guys don't go for the course. I'm not sure if part of it is, and I don't know if this came up when you interviewed me years ago, but I have been told that traditionally girls just apply themselves better in the secondary school environment, so tend to get the higher grades. And if veterinary is benchmarked too high, it's just unachievable for some boys I don't know would you say the benchmark is too high I think it should be reduced I really do I feel you've unfortunately you can end up with people that may have the brain power to do it but are lacking social skills majorly and we all become vet well I don't know I can't speak for the whole veterinary profession but I became a vet because I wanted to help animals and I didn't want to be a doctor I didn't want to be dealing with people all day well I deal with people all day that's my job and I actually really enjoy it um I have had some health issues recently, which has stopped me from consulting and being in the forefront. And I actually miss it. Mm-hmm. I really do miss. I miss the caring and the helping, but I miss the conversations and the connection. Well, let's talk about your health. You've been thrown a major curveball and you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Are you okay now? Yeah, it's funny. Um, that was back in November. I was diagnosed early November, had surgery at the end of November, and then I completed a month of radiotherapy mid-January. So I do feel that I got out of this really quite lightly compared with a lot of people. I just had excisional surgery um, and no need for chemotherapy. But it's, I think it's certainly taken more of a toll on me than I like to admit. What was your first thought when you were told that you had cancer? Um I didn't believe it to start with. I actually just thought it wasn't going to be a cancer. It was just going to be something benign. But I think the worst, the first thing that sort of hit me was the kids. Um, you know, you just worry, what if this is serious? And what if I'm not going to be here? And you don't want to leave them behind. And that's tough. So, but then, you know, I had a fantastic surgeon who had my mind at rest really quite early on he just did a really good job and I have had both my mum and my mother-in-law come out the other side of breast cancer um, and do really well so I think I tend to feel like my risk of it reoccurring is so low I don't even sort of have that on the horizon. How was it picked up? It was picked up I felt it myself I was out I'd been out for a run we were up in Brisbane and I was a bit hot and sweaty and washed under my armpit and just felt this really hard little sort of pebble and went "Mm, that doesn't feel right and I was very lucky the doctors here were great they got me referred within 24 hours for ultrasound and biopsies and I just went straight into the system and the healthcare system here has been fantastic you know it was all MRIs, CTs, bone densities I've had every test under the sun so at least they found nothing (laughs) I haven't found anything else. What was the worst worst procedure that you experienced? Um, Was having an MRI it was the worst I had I am a little bit claustrophobic and I just, as I said, I think before about how I'm a bit, I don't often think things, I don't have real drive or ambition. Sometimes stuff just happens and I just go with the flow. I'm generally quite easy going and I just thought, oh yeah, it's an MRI. And Jason said to me, it's a bit noisy. He's had heaps of MRIs for 
footy injuries. And he went, oh, yeah, it'll be a bit noisy. But at no point did he tell me I would be in a tunnel, <laughs> like, and stuck. And I did not realise I had to go in face down. So I was lying face down with my head in this tunnel. And then they put a camera over my shoulders. So I was sort of compressed down. And I didn't think I was going to be able to cope. I got pushed into that MRI and... I could just feel my heart racing and a complete panic attack. And then I just thought, I've got to do it because if I don't have this done now, I'll have to come back and have it done another day. So that is actually as part of my ongoing checks is an annual MRI. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do it. Have you had a second one? No, it's due in October. And I just don't want to go near. I'm just not thinking about that. <laughs> so what did the kids say when you told them? It was, they were pretty upset. Um... And they do all show it in different ways. Like, certainly Archie's much more attentive. He's a loving little kid anyway. He's quite hands-on. And so he became very much more attached to me. Um, and the other two, Sam, unfortunately, started Googling breast cancer and got himself in a total state and thought that I had a terminal diagnosis, which it certainly wasn't. And so we did share a bit with him. We shared the the grades of the tumour and everything else. And then what happened from that was he, I think it was a stage, I can't even remember, but it was an early stage, but it was stage four, such and such. And Sam then Googled that as stage four breast cancer and thought I was on my way out. The Cancer Council are great. They give you all these books and different things you can talk to children about. But because none of them, I didn't feel we had to go into too much depth. We sort of pulled back with how much we were telling them, but also made it very clear what was happening. And they were okay. They're pretty resilient, aren't they? They are. and More resilient than we give them credit for. Yeah, and look, I think all three of them, I don't feel it has really impacted them too much. So I did lose it with them the other week and told them they needed to be nice to me because I had cancer. (laughs) All that little... That was a few months ago. I was like, you you need to give me more respect. I've got cancer. And they're just like, what? (laughs) So no, they're they're pretty good. And I am on anti-estrogen medication now and that is knocking me around a lot more than I'd like to admit I certainly don't have any sort of stamina that I used to have and I'm getting quite frustrated at the moment I'm trying to get back into my running and my exercise and I just keep hitting fatigue over and over again but I saw the doctor this morning I've just got to realize my limitations at the moment and perhaps rejig my life a little bit to what it needs to be not what I want it to be just so you find it really annoying when someone says oh just slow down just take it easy you've just got battled through cancer I don't feel like I battled through it like I feel yeah I had to have surgery and I had a month of radiotherapy but I feel like it should just be tucked in the you know it's just behind me and I think it's still it's still affecting me and I've just got to go okay I'm going to lie on the sofa today or I'm not going to go for that run but I'm finding that quite confronting that I'm not the energetic go-getter that I was six months ago and that's quite hard. But the doctors say your body will get used to these drugs and then you'll be back to what you were before. Yes that's right and it's also already getting better I was I had a really foggy brain for a couple of months and it's it's beginning to lift but I have said to the girls at work to just keep an eye on me and if I seem to be saying something that doesn't make sense just maybe check (laughs) I'm definitely a bit vaguer than I used to be but that's all right when you reach your 40s I mean when are you supposed to get a mammogram I think I think it's over 50 but you're meant to be able to if there's any history of breast cancer I'm pretty sure you can ask for one over 40 Mm. and I'm glad you asked me actually because it was something I wanted to mention my tumor was not visible on a mammogram and it's because one I don't have a lot of breasts there. And it was on the very edge. 
so I knew it was there because I could feel it. The doctors knew it was there because they could feel it, but the mammogram wouldn't have picked it up. So if I'd gone for a routine mammogram, it wouldn't have been found. So I had to have an ultrasound to actually diagnose where it was and to get the biopsy. So essentially, you're really lucky. Yeah, I'm really lucky. It was on the outside and relatively superficial. I had actually, I had three benign breast lumps removed when I was very young, when I was 14, 17 and 22. And they were just fibroadenomas. And I just assume, and I know I have another fibroadenoma on my left side that I had checked years ago. And I just assumed this was another one of them. Mm. So you're pretty proactive then when it comes to checking. I do check them, but the mammogram wouldn't have picked it up. But I was advised by a GP here a few years ago to have an ultrasound every couple of years because she felt that that was more, um, not necessarily diagnostic, more sensitive probably for me because I'd had previous scarring from other surgeries than a mammogram may miss things but this was more just purely location they just couldn't get it on the mammogram so check them check them check them check them (laughs) what inspires you what inspires me um who inspires you who inspires me um at the moment i'm totally in awe of matt dunn Oh shit, I'm going to cry again. So, Who's Matt Dunn? So Matt, Matt is a friend of Jason's from the Navy. They were in the Navy together. And he's now a doctor um, who was working on childhood cancer. And then his daughter got a brain tumour at the age of two and passed away last year. And Matt has set up, he now researches DIPG which is a brain tumour in children that's his primary focus through his story with Josie Jason's been involved he's on the board of a cancer charity called Run DIPG and we're raising money for brain cancer research and he is just amazing him and his wife Phoebe she's gorgeous she's a GP they've just they're working the way through this and he's still out there he runs he's out there raising money and he's researching this awful awful disease i just take my hat off to them just getting up and getting on with every day they've had a pretty crap few years what makes you feel sad what makes me feel sad is not having family close by like my parents being so far away in scotland and especially in the last 12 months it's been the same for a lot of people just not being able to go and see them when we want to and my mum would have been here in a heartbeat in november and she tried to come but the flights were like sixteen thousand dollars and two weeks quarantine and i just wouldn't let her and also what makes me feel sad is realising I've brought my kids up so far away from a lot of their family that they're just never going to know as well. So. But you don't know that until you're a mother. No, I know. And I think it's even just become more apparent the last couple of years. That's my parents both. My dad hit 73 years ago and mum hit 70 this year. And they're both still very fit and active and able to come out. But how long is that going to continue? I don't know. What's something you've, that you've done in your life and you're really, you're really proud of yourself? Um, I ran the Sydney Marathon three years ago. And that was part of this run DIPG. Matt put it to Jason and I to run the Sydney Marathon. And that was amazing. And I don't think I realised at the time. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll be fine. It was bloody hard work. (laughs) And it was so funny. So I did it. And I was nowhere near anything fast. But I did do it. And I remember coming 
running round through all the rocks at the end, like you're in and out the piers. And my first name's Helen, which is a name I don't use. Oh, but it that's was... right. I remember hearing yeah. that and thinking, who's Helen? Yeah, yeah so I'm, I was christened Helen Louise and then my parents never used it and it's caused me grief all my life, but no more so than finishing the Sydney Marathon and I had Helen on my bib. <laughs> And I was so emotional, I was so knackered. And this lady goes, come on, Helen, you can do it. And I just burst into tears. (laughs) I'm running along crying. That was an amazing thing to do. And I do want to do another one. But, yeah, the Sydney Marathon, running over the Harbour Bridge at 6.30 in the morning is just unbelievable. It was so good. Where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? Hmm... I don't really know. Like, I think I don't have any major ambitions to, to to sort of sell the business. Like, I'd really like it. What we'd like it to be doing is to have a business where I can work a couple of days, two or three days a week, vetting and running it and have a couple of days off and just have it pretty much going along like it is and being able to offer all the services we currently offer to the animals of the Mid-North and to keep it going. No plans to maybe expand further? Have about five clinics instead? (laughs) No, not at all. It was interesting recently when YP shut their doors up in Port Perry and the girls said, oh, are we going to have another branch? And I said, no. (laughs) So we feel we're definitely at the limit of how far we want to spread ourselves. Um, And having the two branch clinics certainly allows our clients that live further away to have more accessible vet care. And then they come in to the main clinic here for anything that's a bit more intensive. Lou, just wanted to say thank you so much. I know it's been a really busy day for you in the clinic and squeezing me in, but it's been an absolute pleasure hearing your backstory. Oh, that's good. Um, No, I'm more than happy to help. And yeah, it was just one of these days (laughs) that things have gone a bit busier, but that's the nature of our job. Which probably is why you love what you do. It yeah. keeps you on your toes. It does. And I think a lot of perhaps where I'm at myself at the moment is I'm not, when I'm vetting and I'm busy every day, it's probably like the majority of people, we're all, when we've got something to do and we're focused, we do it well. When you've got more time in your hands, you tend to sort of slump a bit. And I think my problem is I don't have, I, I'm out of routine right now and I need to get back into it. So I've currently committed to a couple of days consulting a week and I think that'll help my overall sense of achievement (laughs) so we'll see how that goes the Clare Valley and the Mid-North are pretty lucky to have her and on a side note if you have a pet snake or a bird don't be taking them to Lou she's terrified of them if you enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes of the voice it podcast please rate and review I would love to hear from you also Please follow the podcast if you'd like to be notified of future episodes and share this podcast with your friends. Catch you again soon for another episode of Voice It.